This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called Abortion and Protest. Do we need buffer zones? It was recorded at the London Legal Salon event at the October Gallery in London on the 10th of February 2015. Okay, good evening. Hello, welcome to the October Gallery and welcome to this first London Legal Salon debate of 2015 and the first in our series on uh, abortion and the law. Uh, my name's Luke Gittos, I'm convener of the London Legal Salon. The London Legal Salon has made an effort to sort of ramp it up a gear a little bit this year um, and changed format. Uh, for those of you who have been before will know that we are used to running sporadic uh, discussions, usually held above a pub. Uh, this year we've decided to move things into a series of discussions around a particular topic, really trying to get to the grips of... Uh, with the substance of both the legal issues behind a topic uh, and the political ones. Um, And so hopefully this is a particularly fiery way of starting uh, this trend and also 2015 in discussing abortion. We're running these debates alongside Right to Life uh, and King's College uh, Pro-Life Society, although this debate tonight is not in association with King's Pro-Life Society because we're not on their campus, so they can't take account for any fistfights that uh, unfold or anyone who dies or anything like that. So just a couple of words about the other debates in the series. On the 17th of, of this month, which is obviously a week today, we've actually got a seminar on the legal history of abortion with uh, Barbara Hewson, which is taking place at the Perseverance. That will really look at the legislative and case law changes which has happened uh, uh, around abortion over the last century or so. Then on the 24th, we've got uh, Peter Williams uh, debating Anne Faraday uh, in a kind of old-school moral uh, Fist fight over the uh, state, the moral status of the unborn child. Um, that's happening at King's College, and then on the third of March, we've got a discussion on abortion and free speech and whose opinion matters. Uh, does everyone's opinion matter the same in the discussion about abortion, or does it require a degree of perspective from women, religion, etc., etc.? Um, the speakers for the last discussion are, are yet to be confirmed, um, but although they haven't been confirmed, the places are remarkably filling up. Um, and there's been some uh, anxiety about tonight's event. People were surprised they couldn't get a ticket. I'm telling you now, uh, if you want to ticket those debates, book in advance, because they are filling up, um, and, they, and, they, and they will run out. So um, that's about uh, the series and about what we're doing over the next month or so. Uh, but on to tonight, uh, abortion and protest. Do we need buffer zones? Now, this, um, this debate was uh, triggered, really, by uh, the announcement by BPAS of their support uh, of buffer zones around their clinics to prevent uh, protests by organisations, including Abort 67, uh, from protesting uh, around their clinics. And uh, I think it's fair to say actively trying to prevent um, uh, people taking advantage of, of their services or utilising their services. That came, um, gave rise to a flurry of debate about exactly what these buffer zones would entail, and also what the impact of them would be for uh, free speech, freedom of association, etc. Uh, some argued that it was a free speech issue, we should be uh, principled and fundamental about free speech, and that meant that we should defend uh, anyone's right to demonstrate in any way they choose. Uh, sorry if I'm caricaturing a little bit, but uh, uh, it's for effect. Uh, uh, for the... Some people say that it's a perfectly legitimate, pragmatic response to what are extremely obstructive demonstrations, um, to seek to introduce the law um, to, to prevent them from doing so. Um, and now I'm sure that the speakers this evening will give a far more nuanced uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and thought-out approach to the discussion than I've just given. Uh, so without uh, sort of carrying on, uh, the two speakers I've got tonight are Tim Stanley, 
who is a writer for The Telegraph and History Today. He's a regular commentator on current affairs. I'm sure many of you are familiar with his writing, so I'm not going to say too much more. Um, but thank you so much for being here tonight, Tim. I saw Tim speak at the Battle of Ideas this year, a fantastic uh, introduction to his speaking, and I, we sort of clocked him as someone who I'd love to come and speak at the salon, so I'm really grateful uh, that you're here tonight, Tim, so thank you. Um, and on, on my other side is Professor uh, Frank Ferrady, who's a Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent and author of lots and lots of books, including on the First World War, authority, etc. If, you uh, if you're not familiar with Frank's work, then please do go and look up his books and see for yourself uh, what he's all about. Thank you very much for, for being here tonight, Frank. Um, so really, I'm not going to speak for much longer because I know that um, we, we want to get the discussion going. So Tim's going to speak first, uh, then Frank. I'm going to ask a couple of questions and then we're going to um, bring it out as quickly as we can. So Tim, do you want to get us, get us started? Certainly. Uh, um, I think I've got guts to take on Frank Ferrady on this subject. Um, he's a remarkable man, a remarkable mind. And it surprises and perhaps a little bit upsets me to discover that uh, a great spokesman for freedom of speech is on the other side on this issue. Now, we're going to discuss something which is technically all about law, but let's not ignore the context of the framing of that law, and that's the politics. Abortion is a unique issue in how it emotionally defines the debate and how strongly people on both sides feel. I don't see any point running away from it. I'm pro-life. People on my side of the argument tend to regard life as beginning at conception and that what takes place in an abortion clinic uh, is the taking of life. Uh, people who are pro-choice tend to regard um, the issue here as being that of a, the, a woman's right to control her own reproductive system. And they see any attempt to limit that or to uh, cajole a woman out of taking that choice as an assault upon a woman's personhood and her rights as a citizen and as a human being. So there is an incredible division that is very difficult uh, to find much accommodation in. But in a democratic liberal society such as ours, that's exactly what we try and do. We try and strike a consensus between those two groups. And the consensus until now has hitherto worked rather like this. The pro-lifers have accepted that abortion is legal and there is nothing they can do or should try to do to prevent women from getting access to abortion services, which is a big ask for people who in many regards regard it as a great moral sin. On the other side, pro-choices as part of this give and take have to accept the fact that there are people out there who regard this as the taking of a life. And they have to accept, within the context of what is legal, obviously, they have to accept the right of pro-lifers to express their views and to exercise their own freedom of speech. So what we try to do in the last 40 years is to create that kind of consensus within which two people with quite starkly contrasting views can get along with each other and can have some sort of civil discourse. And the problem with the idea of the buffer zones is that it tears apart that consensus. It is one side exercising its privilege over the other, and it's a very, very dangerous idea. Here are the four basic things that are wrong with the idea of a buffer zone. First of all, in legal terms, it's completely unnecessary. We already have the 1986 Public Order Act, which outlaws harassment, alarm or distress being caused to members of the public. If anyone outside an abortion clinic is involved in a, in a protest and they do any of those things to a woman trying to access services, 
And it can be proven, of course, subjectively, not subjectively, but objectively that's what they're doing. It is the police's job to arrest them and to remove them from that site. There is no need for any kind of buffer zone. If the clinic believes it is going on, it is also the clinic's case to make a case for it happening. And by the way, if there are any protesters who are associated with it, it is their responsibility also to report it and to distance themselves <coughs> from it. There is no need to write a new law just because an old one, for strange reasons which are beyond me, is not being properly enforced. If, for example, uh, for some reason, the police were turning a blind eye to burglaries, uh, that doesn't mean you pass a law saying no stranger should ever be invited into anyone's home. You don't suddenly make up new dramatic laws to make up for the fact that there is a procedural problem with the old one. Enforce it. Enforce it properly. Second, uh, introducing buffer zones undermines the entire philosophical point of a protest. When you protest something, it's usually directed. And it's usually directed at people or a thing or a place. So a, a counterexample would be a fox hunt. If you want to protest a fox hunt, what are you trying to do? You're trying to draw attention to the fact that the fox hunt is happening on that day. So you're going to be there where the fox hunt is happening. You're going to get media attention. And you're going to try and persuade the people not to go on the fox hunt. Now, obviously, it would make no sense to ask fox hunt protesters to have that protest just 50 miles in a northerly direction, <laughs> way away from the fox hunt. That's madness, because protest, an inviolable right in my opinion, and the opinion of British law, protest is directed at things usually. And so long as there is no blocking of access, so long as that 1986 Act is not broken, so long as there isn't an incitement to violence, it is surely right that protests should be allowed to occur where the people involved believe that is where the moral disorder is taking place. Third, the idea that the attempt <coughs> to engage women going into an abortion clinic should be curtailed altogether, so that is outside of the confines of the 1906 Act, is incredibly flawed and very, very hard to enforce. So uh, what does engagement involve? Does it involve saying good morning to someone? Does engagement involve handing over a leaflet to someone? We're going to have a great deal of difficulty deciding what exactly engagement is. And besides, it has long been understood in our legal system that the, the public highways and byways, the common land, that uh, pavements, are places where people are free to express themselves. And you equally, of course, are entirely free to ignore them. But we still, in day-by-day -day discourse, have engagement. It, it might well be very nice to ban that kind of engagement come election time, because under the principle of the buffer zone law, we could, for instance, deny UKIP the right to canvas. Some people might quite like that, I don't know. But it doesn't seem like a very fair restriction of people's liberties to me. And again, it's going to be hard to judge, and it's unnecessary, and again, we still have the 1986 Act, which could simply be enforced. Fourth, it is entirely possible as BPAS has complained, uh, that there are individual protesters who do bad things. Uh, for instance, there are some, I believe, who use cameras. They insist they use the cameras in order to record themselves, to protect themselves against attack. But nonetheless, if that's an invasion of privacy. Again, police should be involved, and that should be stopped. But think about it. Are you going to write law that curtails an entire group's freedom of expression because of the bad behaviour of one or two people within it? 
So if in, the, if in a Sunday afternoon someone ignores the sign in a park that says don't walk on the grass and walks on it, what do you do? You throw that individual out for walking on the grass. You don't clamp a curfew down and ban everyone from the park. So in other words, to sum up very briefly, I think all these objections seem to me perfectly logical and they all come back to the point that we've had this consensus for a long time and the law is there to make sure that consensus takes place in a peaceful context. Why is BPAS doing this? It is doing this because it wishes to use the law in order to advantage itself and to advantage its own clinics. And that absolutely cannot be the right thing to do. And I've just added one final thing. Um, I have myself been on pro-life vigils outside abortion clinics. And I can tell you that nine times out of ten, it is eight little old ladies saying the rosary while one policeman walks around nervously, not quite sure why he's there. You do it for two hours, then it gets too cold, you give up and go to the pub. This is completely unnecessary. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, the, the question I'm trying to deal with is how do you reconcile people's uh, freedom to assemble, which is really what we're talking about, their right to protest, which is all our very precious rights, with the ability of women to exercise the choice that they've made and gain access to a medical treatment, and with the uh, service provider to provide their duty of care to that individual. How do you reconcile uh, those two elements? And it seems to me what we are interested in is, is finding the greatest possible scope for allowing people the right to assemble freely, uh, the greatest possible scope to exercise their right to free speech, and to enjoy their democratic rights with the right of a clinic to actually exist as a clinic, because that's what we're talking about. The only reason why the issue has come up is not because BPAS is trying to privilege its argument or is trying to gain publicity. It's because it just wants to get on with the fact that it wants to run a service in circumstances where if it's not able to immunize itself from people who are intimidating people walking in there, it couldn't really function. That's really what we're talking about. I think the law issue is quite irrelevant here because nobody, as far as I'm concerned, is arguing for the enactment of a law. I, I don't think that's the issue. I don't think BPAS is arguing for a law in Parliament, nor are legal issues of particular concern because in this domain, the idea that if BPAS can prove or if somebody can prove that somebody's been intimidated is, is not, a, not a very big help because it's an after-the-event after the event uh, sort of conclusion, you know, by which time the woman who had been intimidated has not been able to have her abortion. So it's all very well for her to know, after she's given birth to a child she doesn't want to know, that the court has ruled in her favor. Right? But and precisely because of the after-the-event character of the way that the law works in relation to this, that what BPAS is rightly concerned with is the moment, the moment of entry and, and the right to entry. I just want to begin by saying a few general principles. I think the first important point about free speech, certainly as a libertarian, I argue, is that free speech is absolute. It's non-negotiable. And I'm quite happy for anybody from Holocaust deniers to whatever your persuasion is, to have total freedom of speech. And I've always argued for that. And that hasn't really changed. I don't think the issue uh, in this case is the freedom of Board 67 to uh, uh, say what he wants to do or to express what he wants to do. From this standpoint, I'm actually, as I'm just as concerned about the freedom of speech or Board 67, 
or any of my political opponents as about my freedom of speech. And I say that not for instrumental reasons, not because it's pragmatic, but because I recognize that the freedom of speech is indivisible. And it's only through learning from what people argue against your own case. It's only through the uh, discussion and debate that occurs that real progressive ideas can be clarified and gained force. So I've got every, every uh, sort of incentive <coughs> to protect pro-life people's free speech 120% without any kind of discussion. The issue at stake in relation to this is not freedom of speech, it's the freedom of assembly. That's what we're talking about. Freedom of assembly and free speech are two different things. Free speech is logically prior to the freedom of assembly. Freedom of assembly is a secondary right that's been recognized both in legal and philosophical terms, of which there is a derivative right to protest. The right to protest actually emerges from the freedom of assembly. Now, freedom of assembly, as most of you know, uh, who've looked at the question, or understand that freedom of assembly can never be absolute. It is usually subject to some form of time, place, and manner restriction. In other words, is the freedom of assembly compatible with the normal activities that are carried out at any particular time? And that's generally been understood. So, for example, while I completely support the right of Occupy to have a freedom of assembly in front of St. Paul's Cathedral, maybe for one day or two days, I do have serious objections to them spending the next eight months and not allowing people access to St. Paul's Cathedral. Freedom of assembly is always contingent in every democracy and will always be contingent. It will never be an absolute right for the very simple re reason that your freedom of assembly uh, will, if so facto, contradict often my freedom of assembly, my ability to carry out certain uh, sort of functions in a normal, everyday way. So it's a, a contingent freedom. It's always been recognized as a contingent freedom, and it's always been based on the fact that we have to allow people to exercise uh, their, their normal activities and to limit the possibility of infringing and, and, and kind of stepping on the feet of those individuals. Now let's look at the specifics of the back-off campaign. Now, the back-off campaign aims to constrain a very specific form of action, which is the attempt to prevent women from exercising the choice that they have made. It's not about leaflet. It's not about placards. You know, as far as uh, BPAS is concerned, they've always been, they've been prepared to defend the right of pro-life campaigners to show pornographic images of fetuses. I mean, they've always been open to the idea of allowing them to have free access to television to, to, kind of, to kind of show those kinds of things. It's always been a very liberal approach towards the speech elements. It's really about very specific thing. It's really about not the freedom of speech, but it's really, nor is it about the right to protest, because uh, a board 67 can protest as much as, as, as they would like. It's about an attempt to restrict a board 67's right to assemble to any place of its choosing. In other words, it's really about the freedom of assembly of Abort 67 to simply be where it wants to uh, at any particular time. And the reason for that is because in this way, what you're trying to do is to limit the ability of Abort 67 to interfere and intimidate patients from accessing services through the clinic. That's what it's all about. It's about stopping the intimidation of individuals. Now, you might say, well, you know, their free speech is your intimidation, but actually you don't need a PhD in the finer uh, sort of uh, 
sort of studies of psychology to know that when people are harassing you as you're going into a, into a clinic with cameras, you know, sort of on, uh, that it's not exactly an uh, intimidation-free uh, sort of environment. It seems to me that Abort 67 is actually a very interesting case because unlike most sections of the pro-life movement, for whom I have the utmost respect, Abort 67 actually avoids having a debate on substantive issues. They're not particularly engaged or interested in engaging uh, with, with arguments, for example, the arguments that women have to kind of consider when they weigh up uh, uh, making choices about the course of their, their pregnancy. They're not particularly interested in the distinctions that people have to live with and the tensions that they experience in the course of that and how, how they argue with that. That's not really what they're concerned with. And in fact, unlike BPAS, which, uh, which you know, sort of who, who is concerned with these kinds of issues, they're not particularly interested in, in the whole domain of, of moral dilemmas, the whole domain of moral choices. In fact, there is no moral equivalence here between the two sides. There is no moral equivalence because what you've got here is BPAS for whom choice is paramount and for whom it's not really important what the outcome of that choice is. It doesn't really matter whether you want a an abortion or not, as long as you've got the right to make that choice. And you've got Abort 67, for whom the idea of a choice, the idea of exercising moral autonomy, is an annihilation of their identity. There is no symmetrical kind of relationship here. And it seems to me that under those circumstances, what you have is a situation where it's not about debate. In fact, Abort 67 says, they're not about debating, they're not about even protesting. What they argue is they want to stop women from entering the clinic. And, and they're quite explicit, and to their credit, they're quite upfront about that. I just want to make one last point. I've got no problem with people trying to in intimidate other people in, in the service of a good cause. As a former radical, I have been on picket lines, and I have tried to stop scabs from going into work. I've organized student strikes and, sh and I shut down and helped people shut down universities and prevent people from coming into the rooms. And the reason why I did that was because I thought that I was morally right. I thought the cause that I fought for was well worth using force and using intimidation. Because that's really what it was. But, unlike Abort 67, I never deceived myself nor the public by saying that what was at issue was my freedom of assembly, that what was at issue was my freedom of speech, that somehow I tried to recast the act of intimidation in a very different kind of language of freedoms, which is really uh, something that is entirely absent from here. And you see, the reason why this is really important is because intimidation <coughs> in some cases is all right. But you do cross the line. You do cross the line when you try to intimidate patients who are trying to have access to a clinical service, you do cross the line where instead of arguing about the choice that women have made, you try to prevent them from exercising the choice that those individuals have made. Because under those circumstances, what you do is you forget what every civilized society has always understood, which is that the way that patients are what we think of patients, their status, is very different than anybody else. Not because they're weak or vulnerable. We presume that every patient, man or woman, entering a hospital or a, or a clinic, needs to have certain protections that we don't afford anybody else. They need to have confidentiality. 
We don't have confidentiality when you go into a supermarket. We don't have confidentiality when you go into a factory. But we do recognize that patients entering a clinic are entitled to confidentiality. We also recognize that patients, unlike anybody else, need to be immunized from the pressures and the tensions and the intimidation that is quite acceptable in other domains of social experience. Which is why we always, in every civilized society, make a distinction between what a patient is and what a normal human being is. I don't think it's an accident that what a board 67 is charged to do is actually define people who are patients out of existence. Because from their own perspective, the people that are entering that clinic are not patients in service of medical service, they're not searching for medical service, they are simply sinners and murderers. And as far as they're concerned, from that standpoint, they're entitled to do whatever they want, which is fine, but as long as it's got nothing to do with any discussion of freedom in any of its forms. Thank you, Frank. I'm going to ask two very uh, one question to each person, then we're going to I promise we'll come out. Tim, you said that this was not this is about enforcing the current law properly, um, but obviously if we enforce the current law properly, harassment could be applied to almost anything. It's it's a law no, which no well I mean it, it could in theory apply to uh, many things which we would think of as limiting freedom of speech, and it has been in the past. Football chanting, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of uh, people expressing political opinions against Scientology, for example. So do you not recognise that as even a danger? Or um, could you clarify what you mean by enforce it properly and what does properly mean? Well, in some of those cases, um, I'd be all in favour of harassment being used to silence those people when it comes to things like football hooliganism. And in other cases, it sounds to me like you're describing private suits rather than something which... I mean, it comes down to what you think can succeed in a court. So you have to approach with reason. And it has to be something that objectively can be proven was harassment. Now, Professor Faraday, in his remarks, began by saying this, the law doesn't matter. It, it really, really does. And it's at the heart of my explanation of why we don't need these buffer zones. I agree with you. Freedom of assembly is not an absolute right. That's why we have the 1986 Act, which defines what you cannot do when you assemble. So what I'm saying is you then don't need to do something new to replace that. Um, and as regards to uh, this question of anything can be intimidating, again, I come back to the law. No, it can't, because we have the language of the 1986 Act, which clearly defines what is intimidating. So that's my answer to that. The law is there. It is up to people to properly enforce it. And from my perspective, it does not require the change that Professor Frady is claiming it does. Well, that leads on to my brief question for Frank. And I think some... Some people raised their eyebrows when you said that what people are asking for is not a new law. Um, can, uh, some people might think you dodged a little bit of a bullet um, by sort of introducing that. Can you just explain a little bit more about what a buffer zone is then? Well, uh, I'm, well prior to that, one point that needs to be made, which is that when BPAS asked the law to be enforced, you know, the police looked at their shoelaces and said that this is not something they're particularly interested in doing. Now, BPAS can just say, well, oh yes, well, that's it, we'll close down our clinics because the law is not being enforced. It could, it could do that. It could basically acquiesce to the reality of the situation, or it can do uh, uh, something that, that will allow it to operate without infringing upon the freedom of people to protest and to make their cases. BPAS is not asking for a new law, as far as I know. I mean, maybe 
I'm not privy to their discussion. Maybe behind the scenes, they're desperately looking for uh, uh, new laws. I know that most people in BPAS have never entertained the idea of prosecuting individuals. They're, they're completely open-minded and tolerant in relation to that. They're, they're not getting lawyers to pass new laws. They, what they're interested in is, is a very practical solution to a practical problem. If you look at the clinic in question, we're talking about a specific clinic, by the way. We're not talking about every single clinic in the world. If you like to look at that clinic, and the narrowness of that street in terms of what we're talking about, you know, it, it is simply intolerable you know, for uh, any uh, sort of organization to survive and to exist if we have individuals who are entering, uh, entering into that building uh, sort of not being able to make the choices that they've already kind of carried out. So it's a very kind of practical thing. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, for me, buffer zones are, are, are not particularly important, either one way or the other. All that I care about is that there's a solution, a practical solution found, whereby these individuals are kept at a distance, you know, and not a big distance, you know, a, 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 a bit of a distance, so that individuals can actually go into the clinic in a way that uh, you would uh, respect other patients to go into any, any other clinic. So I think that, you know, we have to get, get down to the real world. People are confusing what is a very specific practical problem with something else. If there are any dangers in terms of its consequences, then the danger comes from the fact that individuals who are protesting are, are, are doing stuff in such a way that it will have only uh, uh, sort of negative, destructive consequences. But you know, I'm, I'm afraid that Tim lives in a different world than the real world. In, in the real world, the law and the police you know, does not operate according to the, formal, you know, the formality of, of, of the way that it's, it's been set up. Uh, unfortunately, if you look at poli our police in Britain are much more interested in looking at historical cases of uh, whatever happened 50, 60, 70 years ago and, and, and discovering terrible crimes, you know, sort of 85, 100 years ago than in terms of what's happening in the 21st century. Okay, I'm not going okay. to take any more, but I'm going to come out uh, to the audience so that you can pass it back to the person right at the back. Thanks. Um, it's a question for Frank, really, about Abort 67 and how to characterise what it is they're doing. Because having thought about this um, a lot over the last year or so, I've ended up feeling that either terms to do with speech or to terms to do with protest don't actually characterise what they're up to. I mean, they're not the terms that they use. They call what they're doing education, which is rather comical or disgusting or a complete travesty of anything that anybody could possibly call education. Um, but that's how they think of what they're doing anyway. Um, and I just find these, there's, there's something about what they're doing which this debate about free speech and protest somehow doesn't get to because, I mean, what they're doing is raw, it's visceral. I mean, it's an attempt to elicit disgust, really, I think, um, within the woman and among the wider society. Um, it looks to me more like certain versions of public health campaigns as they presently exist as it goes. I think they've probably got more in common with the Department of Health than anybody else. Anyway, I, you know, I'm just interested in, in how to characterise it and whether there's anything else like it going on. Okay, thanks. Um, who else would like to speak? Uh, should we come down here? Um, I, I think that's the least convincing speech you've ever given, Frank. Um, well, I, I don't. I give a much less. Well, well, it's my turn now. Thanks. Um, I just want. I think we should be talking about the law. I completely agree with Tim Stanley. Let's just talk about the law 
and, and what uh, we're familiar with in terms of our, our kind of um, our understanding of how the state um, polices public spaces. Uh, what we used to say, for example, we used to use this example all the time. The Public Order Act of 1936 was the first time it was it was justified. It was introduced. The justification for it being introduced was to uh, stop black shirts from organising in the East End of London. Its application, the first time it was used, was against um, the Communist Party. Um, I think it was in a booklet you wrote, Frank, called uh, Our Flag is Red. Now, obviously, that's out of date, because the point is, um, I think that the, the issue about the, about the law these days is we're, what we're asking for is we're asking for the law to champion the rights of the individual here. The whole point about the law at the moment is the whole notion of uh, a self-possessed uh, individual in the law is utterly bastardised. Uh, you know, where we have we have jury trials at the moment where individuals are, you know, people are convicted on the basis of video evidence. Um, you know, my problem is is calling up. What what are we asking for here? We're, we're asking for the uh, the law to be an agent to protect individual liberty. Well. The, the law can't do that. Um, you know, there may be certain you know instances historically where it could have done. It can't now. Uh, it's just like any situation, any part of society. The the notion of the individual, the str a strong, self-possessed individual, is utterly bastardised. That's great. Thank you. And let's come down here, and then we'll come here. I want to applaud uh, uh, Tom Stanley and Frank Ferrady for this issue because actually. Uh, my name is Tessa Mays, I'm author of Restraint to Revelation, um, and the reason I'm here today is because quite a few years ago when I wrote that book, a similar issue arose, except that the protesters uh, on the side I was looking at was actually a photojournalist taking photos, and the patient, if you like, was a celebrity, Naomi Campbell, who was seeking drug treatment. Uh, and in that situation, I as well had to try and work out how do you reconcile freedom of speech expression of a photographer with the rights of someone who may be a hypocrite because she'd always denied her uh, drug uh, taking uh, who to, to take you know treatment um, and it was a sorry state of affairs in many ways because it was her private life uh, all over the daily mirror and um, actually she went to court uh, she won then it went to appeal the courts ruled against her they were confused and then she won uh, it's an interesting case because these philosophical, ethical and legal issues all arose at once. In this case, now fast forward, what we have is uh, not just photographers, journalists doing specific stories uh, with a sort of uh, democratic content in a way, however unpleasant about the personal life, but trying to inform people about hypocrisy in this case. Um, we have, uh, as has been explained, uh, protesters with a particular mission and on the other side, we don't have a hypocritical uh, uh, celebrity. We have people seeking real medical treatments. Um, and my only sort of addition, really, to say is that I do think that I don't really care if the protesters are a bit rubbish, a bit rude. Or, that's, for me, that's not the issue. But I, I do think that in this situation, there needs to be a practical way for women to be able to get uh, exercise their choice for abortion. Uh, and my question is, are there no other, other ways? If we don't want a line of police to be called necessarily um, because that, that itself is kind of frightening, dramatic prospect anyway. Um, are there no other ways? I mean, we, ha we have also a history in this country of 
having abortion clinics sort of quite separate from hospitals? <coughs> you know, what if we try to campaign for uh, these clinics to be combined with hospitals where there's more protection, where no one knows who's going in, broken leg, abortion, you know, it wouldn't be so identifiable. Um, and, and it really occurred to me, thinking about all this, that um, there are practical solutions and let's widen the range of them because we want both freedom to protest and we want to preserve the right of women to exercise their choice. Great, thank you. Um, I'll come here next and then we'll go there. Yeah, my uh, question as well is a bit like the one right at the back um, around why this is such a, an issue in a sense with Abort 67 because it seems to me more uh, broadly that today we're living in a time where actually abortion is um, far less contested culturally and politically than it has ever been before, historically, I would suggest. Um, and I think in that sense it's, it's interesting that it, it seems like the people painted into a corner almost that are react, reacting and in a pretty horrible way, um, in a kind of terroristic way in, in a certain sense, outside these um, clinics. Um, and I was, I, th I think what's interesting for me, especially when you talk about them being uh, patients as well, is um, whilst I think abortion is culturally and politically acceptable today, more so than ever before, a pregnant woman drinking a glass of wine in a pub is not. Um, and to some extent, I feel like maybe we need a, a buffer zone around women trying to have a drink in a, in a pub who will be confronted by bar, bar staff and members of the public in the pub who will, in a kind of react, visceral way as well, shout at a woman uh, for having a, a drink in, in the pub when she's pregnant. And I, I, and I think um, it's, it's quite interesting in, in that sense that those, that kind of personal, uh, private act of an individual woman who would go and have a drink in the same way as this uh, personal private act you can say of going to have, a, have an abortion can have these uh, reaction and is there any link or similarity in a sense between those those things? Thanks. I'll come here to uh, Anne Frady, who sat very patiently while we will talk about her. And then I'll come back to the panel and then go back out. Yeah, Anne Frady, I run the British Pregnancy Advisory Service and I suppose in some ways I'm kind of responsible for this messy discussion, and I know that there are some people who think that I shouldn't have raised it. And I actually think it's very important that we do raise these things and discuss them, because I don't think that politics can remain completely set aside from the practical applications. And in some ways, it's a discussion about what happens when you have a clash of values, when you have a clash of people trying to you know, defend particular rights is something that isn't even 21st century. It's really what's been at the core of moral philosophy. You know, what, what do you do when you get a clash of values? Um, so I think it is quite important to think about how we relate to it. I'm really taken with this, some of these points that have been raised about the different character of what's going on now, and in particular, uh, this notion about... Um, people's personal actions being understood and targeted in a way that is very political. And that's one of the reasons why I felt so strongly about this, because I run a service, I've got very strong political views that I debate and argue about, and we'll be debating with Peter about in two weeks' time, 
on the unborn. Um, women who come to BPAS clinics do not come to BPAS clinics to demonstrate any political view whatsoever. They're simply there solving a particular problem. And a lot of them are people who would not see themselves as being pro-choice, actually. A lot of them will be in the clinic and they'll be saying, I actually don't agree with abortion. I really don't agree with abortion. I'm just here to solve my particular problem. They're dealing with their own problem. And I think that's what I find so completely abhorrent and so completely unacceptable and intolerable, actually, about the way that this form of action, whether you call it a protest or whatever you call it, is actually being fulfilled at the moment because as... Andy Stevenson, the guy who runs Abort 67, has said he's not trying to protest against abortion. He thinks abortion protests itself. He is trying to stop that particular woman from going into the clinic to have that particular abortion. Now, they have got a political agenda. The woman going into the clinic has not got a political agenda. So therefore, we're not talking about a protest, a political protest, in the way I think that those of us who are involved in politics have actually, you know, uh, appreciated this in the past. And you're completely wrong when you say, Tim, that this is the way that things have always been. You know, for the 10 years that I've been running BPAS and for the 20 years that I've been involved in, 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 in this scene, you're dead right. The protests that you've described are exactly what's gone on. Six nuns a few rosary beads and a few sad-looking boys gathered around who get cold. Do you know that our clinics, some of our clinic managers would even take out the protesters a cup of tea because they felt sorry for them. We've got two nuns at one of the clinics who, you know, that was literally the way that we were dealing with them. But that is different from what's going on here. That's a bunch of people with placards and rosaries shouting a bit about or praying a bit about why abortion should be illegal. It is not going up to a woman, walking alongside her, asking her why she's having the abortion, how pregnant she is, does she know what's going to happen during the abortion, has she seen what her fetus is going to look like after the abortion, does she know that it's going to damage her mentally, does she know she'll never be able to get pregnant again, mm. you know, which is basically <clears throat> not what people should have to put up with when they're coming into one of my clinics, which is why I think that they've got a duty of care. And I can tell you absolutely, just finally, what this back-off thing is about. You know, I do not care, frankly, whether it's, a, whether it's a new law or whether it's the police implementing the laws that are going on at the moment. I absolutely could not give a monkeys about it. All we have basically said is women, the patients who are coming into our clinics should be able to do so without having people with cameras strapped to them in their face, giving them that kind of 101. Now, actually, the most practical, liberal way that I can think of doing that is by basically saying, you want your right to protest, you can say whatever you want, but you know what, mate, just do it over there, because you're not going to come near this particular woman. And as far as I'm concerned, that is what it's about. It's basically saying, you can protest, you can say what you want, but you do it over there and you leave the patients alone. And that seems to me a, a perfectly reasonable demand for people who are carrying out a legal form of medical treatment. You just leave the patients alone and confine yourself to some proper political demonstrating.
Great, thank you very much indeed. Um, Tim, do you want to come back in a minute? Uh, on all the remarks, Mr. Ford? Any you choose. Right, okay. Um, whenever there is uh, a protest, non-political actors will inevitably become involved. So I am not, I am not making, believe me, I'm not making a comparison, but if a civil rights protester in the 1960s chooses to sit at a lunch counter they're not supposed to sit at, the person serving didn't frame the law, the person sitting next to them didn't frame the law, but they are involved in the protest. And what kind of police turn up and try and move them on? Suddenly a non-political actor is involved in the protest. So don't presume that protests can sometimes involve non-political actors. Secondly, I, I'm in a very difficult position because I don't support uh, Abort 67. I have to check their name. I don't, I don't support Abort 67, and I must confess I've never actually personally encountered them at a vigil, although I'm aware of what they do, what they do and I've seen footage of what they do. I can't really speak for them. Uh, I wouldn't presume to do so. I think it's unfair they should be able and be uh, able to defend themselves and what they do. But if I can give uh, what I sense is a, if a sense of their perspective, you may demand a justification for why someone would say to you when you're going into a clinic, are you pregnant? How pregnant are you? Do you know the alternatives? That may seem intimidating, that may seem offensive to you. From the protesters' perspective, what takes place in the clinic is far worse and is not justified. And that is what they are trying to prevent. Now, given that extreme dichotomy of views, and given that I don't want these kind of scenes, all I'm arguing for is a return to the consensus. Let's have both sides obey and enforce the law. Let's have the protesters not do anything which breaks that act. Let them not film people and, and, and take away their privacy. Let them not intimidate people. Absolutely. But equally, by the way, doctors should not take part in gender-specific abortion, which is technically illegal. And also, doctors should not pre-sign forms to say that someone can have an abortion when they haven't even seen the patient. And both those things occur, and very few people talk about the law needing to be enforced on those points. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the question you raised in the back about is this different than other protests, I don't think it is. I think uh, Abort 67 really captures the zeitgeist of our time. Uh, and, and they do so because uh, by their uh, one-dimensional focus on targeting individuals, <laughs> what they're really uh, sort of giving lip service is the old feminist saying that the person is political, which is the dominant political mood on campuses. I mean, all the you know, sort of infringements on people's rights and <coughs> freedoms, uh, all the uh, privileging, all the arguments about you know, privileges, are very much to do with the personal being political. And I think this is just you know, sort of one dimension of that. They're not really aware of it, but their manner of operating, their, their uh, sort of disassociation from uh, intellectual, political uh, sort of debates and discussion indicates that they represent that kind of narrow, fragmented kind of moment. As it happens, it doesn't really matter what their politics is, because even if they were the most uh, politically you know, sort of a sophisticated organization with high ideals, and, and I would still argue the same thing, which is that uh, the issue at stake here 
is, is to do with the right of, of, of people to exercise their choice. I think it's a, it's a very sort of simple, uh, simple kind of issue. I, I, I think that, you know, as far as I'm, I, I can tell, nobody in this room uh, uh, has so far been able to argue that any issue to do with freedom is at, at stake here. Right? I don't think that, that is at stake here. So given the fact that we all understand that neither the freedom of speech, nor the, the right to protest, nor the freedom of assembly in, in its fundamental is at stake here. You know, what we are really discussing is actually a practical problem. You know, how do you uh, engage with a practical problem? Now, people have suggested that maybe BPAS should reinvent itself as a generic hospital, you know, which it should hide behind other people. Well, actually, I don't see why BPAS and its clinics have got to reorganize their life just because there's a, a number of individuals uh, do not respect certain specific kind of boundaries. It seems to me that uh, you know, there is a very fundamental is issue at stake here, which is that there are certain boundaries that in a civilized society we recognize, regardless of our, our moral differences, and you do not treat patients the way you would treat people on a bus or in any other kind of environment. And that was for all patients, you see. It's, uh, it's not just women who we're talking about. I think if I'm having an appendix operation, or if we have, for example, uh, as yet in Birmingham, some soldiers coming back from uh, Afghanistan who are wounded, and they are being harangued by some Muslim nurses in the hospital, I don't think that's the place to have a debate in the war. And I can totally understand why you, know, sort of you want to prevent those uh, nurses from putting forward their political ideals on the Afghanistani war and allowing the, the, those soldiers, those wounded soldiers, from recuperating. I mean, I, I don't think you need a PhD in psychology to understand you know, that this is the case. I don't know why that should be, you know, that right should, should somehow be abolished in relation to this specific kind of instance. And I think, I think that, you know, the reason why this discussion is so confused, because it's not about the law, as I said at the very point. Nobody's arguing for a change in law. I'm certain that BPAS is arguing for a change in law. It, it's really about solving a practical problem in, in, the, in, in a way that's, that's got the least amount of negative consequences for all concerned. And I think, you know, to imagine that there's been uh, some legal you know, sort of innovation carried out here uh, is a fantasy, and you're not really looking at what's being discussed here. Okay, I promise I'll come down this side, so I'll go to the front first. I agree with the characterization of Abort 67 that uh, Frank and others in the audience have put across. Um, they even agree with it themselves. Maybe that's what makes them exceptional, you know. Um, but when it comes to how to characterize people like that and which freedoms they're using, whether they're using them properly or not, or whether they, you know, doing it in a bogus way. I don't actually trust the authorities to make that call. And I, I think perhaps there's no explicit call for a new law in the back-off campaign, but I think it's extremely likely that new law will result from it. Um, I, I, do, I care very much about that, and I don't think we can wash our hands of it. Granted, um, I, I can understand the sort of... Um, I can understand the you know, desire to be um, on the front foot about this and not to acquiesce. Um, and I'm, granted, I'm not the one running a vital service and making tough decisions and facing practical problems. But at the very least, we should acknowledge something that, that Tim mentioned, that there's an enforcement problem in enforcing an existing law. Or that people uh, might decide to close uh, a clinic, a practice manager or some other person, if there are volatile scenes outside. Um, at least we have to, to think about and, and, and confront that rather than washing our hands of it or saying we'll come along later and mop up if, if the new law follows and if there are um, adverse consequences. I don't trust the authorities to make some of the distinctions we're making here, even if I agree with them. 
Um, I don't, I'm, I'm wary about how, about confusing the demarcation of space, public space and private space, from the use to which space is put. So someone in a public space using it for a private purpose because they're approaching a private clinic. Asking those sorts of fine distinctions to be made, possibly codified in law or acted on by, by the authorities, um, is something I think could, could have adverse consequences that I'm quite concerned about. And finally, um, I'm not sure about medicine and patients being entirely beyond uh, contention when it comes to who's fair game to protest and engage with. I mean, I think, I think there's a point there, granted, um, but, you know, uh, what is and is not a legitimate medical procedure or should be thought of as medical is itself a political question. Now, granted, abortion, um, you know, is legal. Well, it's not, actually. It's quasi-legal in this country. More's the pity if you're pro-choice, uh, like I am. Um, but, you know, the character, the idea that once a legal battle has been fought so that a service can be legally provided, then it's beyond contention. Um, and then you can start policing the way people protest around it on those grounds. I mean, I just worry that two can play at that game. And I can envision myself in circumstances where I want to challenge the legal characterisation of something as being either medical or non-medical. And I'm, I'm worried about foreclosing. Uh, uh, some, you know, in, in future scenarios, the options available to people who want to protest and engage. Great, thank you. Um, that, uh, right. There still seems to me to be a quite severe lack of clarity in what is actually being proposed within the buffer zones. I mean, Frank has said repeatedly that this is not a new law. Anne says she doesn't mind if it's a law or some, if it's a new law, if it's enforcing a current one. Um, but I say the only other time, only other time place I've seen buffer zones and abortion clinics, it was a law. It was a law in the United States. Yeah. And in fact, it's found to be exactly that, a violation of free speech, I think unanimously for the Supreme Court. So my question is, what exactly is being proposed? Is it a new law, or is it, as Tim is arguing for, an enforcement of the current law? If it is the new law, what exactly is it in detail? How will it be enforced? These are questions I don't really think have been addressed. A very exception, I'm going to answer, just answer that question, because she's here for, for the back off. Okay, no, I mean, it is very, very simple. Always, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not going to form a law or tell you what kind of a law there should be. All we're basically saying is this practice that these people standing outside the clinic at the moment, that what they're doing to the clients should not happen. It cannot happen to these clients and the protesters, if they're going to protest, need to be some distance back away from those clients. <coughs> now, as regards the police, the police say, oh, well, we're not really sure whether there's anything we can do about it. Some people say, the Home Office say, oh, well, yes, you know, they agree with Tim. They think, well, there are laws in place, we should be able to move them on. The police say, no, there's nothing we can do about it. We say, sort the bloody thing out, frankly, and get them away from these patients. And it is your job to sort out how that happens. It is not our job to sort out how that happens. And it's as simple and straightforward as that. All we're concerned about with other clients. Great, thank you. Okay, so we'll come back to this side. We'll come back to this side here. Peter Williams, right to line. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sort of very divided on this debate because, uh, like Tim, like others, I'm very opposed to what 60 what they do. I debated Greg Cunningham a week before I ended when he came over and thoroughly disagreed with the Board 67 as a right to life campaigner. Um, but I do disagree with you, um, because I think that I am going to defend this on freedom grounds, um, if you don't think anyone else has, because I think that your argument actually would lead to the chilling of speech. Um, 
Your argument essentially boils down to that freedom of assembly is not a, an absolute right, it's a contingent right, um, and you use the analogy with St Paul's Cathedral that you wouldn't allow people to block people from going into St Paul's Cathedral because it would infringe their freedom of assembly. But you do that on the basis that Abortion 57 are engaging in what you call harassment. Now, harassment is a very specific legal term, and it involves a test. And the test is actually very interesting from a moral philosophical perspective. The test is intentionality. It's not just enough to prove that Abortion 67 make people feel harassed. You actually have to prove that their intention is to harass people. And they would argue, and, and I believe them, even though I thoroughly disagree with them, that they want to persuade women by showing them the reality of abortion. Well, look, uh, they genuinely think they're doing that. And you might think that that's incredibly patronising to women as if they haven't thought about the issue. Uh, you might say that this is via pornography and the emotionalism of, of gory images. And I wouldn't disagree with you. But the point is what they're engaging in is simply strong moral pressure. And that is not analogous to someone blocking off St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, and I'm not convinced by uh, using medical patients, uh, like Sandy, I'm not convinced that medical patients are uh, a unique case here, that you shouldn't allow moral, strong moral pressure on patients. I mean, to say that abortion is like having your appendix out or like soldiers recuperating is surely begging the question. That's precisely the matter of debate within society. And the problem with this whole issue is it's sui generis. That, you know, this is not an issue you find in any other, as far as I can think, any other uh, medical situation. So I think it behoves us to err on the side of liberty when it comes to that. But you've just said, you've said and we've just heard that, okay, buffer zones are not going to be a legal imposition, so therefore it's not about freedom. All right, if it's not about freedom, then the, the question I would have um, would be how is it practical or practicable if it's not going to be enforced? If you're just simply saying, well, I think morally they should back <coughs> off, well, you're simply saying to them, you should back off. Fair enough, but if they say, well, actually, I don't think I should back off, what are you going to do? How are buffer zones, therefore, any kind of proposal whatsoever? So, okay, thank you, Peter. We're going to carry on on this back, and then we'll come back into the panel. Thank you. Um, I just want to bring up this <clears throat> issue of choice. You talked about BPAS being all pro-choice. I mean, they don't care what decisions made, and Abort 67 don't care about choice at all. I don't know if that's a fair representation of them, because I don't know them very well, but um, my experience of vigils is, is more like Tim's, though I'm not a nun or... Hopefully I'm not sad, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but my experience is that you're there to offer somebody choice. I've had many people come up to me and say, I wish you'd been here when I had my abortion 20 years ago. I felt I had no choice. And so if there are people there saying, well, you know, if you feel you have no choice, we're going to give you baby clothes, we're going to help you financially. And I find it slightly strange that I'm afraid you can say that she's had people in her clinics who don't want abortions and is objecting to them even being given a leaflet by a nun or me outside the clinic. Okay, we'll come back. Uh, yeah, here. A few quick points to make as a lawyer. It's not really a lawyer's point. I am a bit surprised to come into a and see three men on the panel. I don't know how many other women are going to feel the same. Well, then come to abortion. Whose opinion matters on the 3rd of March? I'm very sure that that's a lot of balanced issue to see three men on the panel and know them is very surprising. The substantive points, if they're more substantive than that, it's not true to say that harassment requires intention, even under the Protection from Harassment Act, which is only one of the definitions of harassment in law, it doesn't require intentionality. The point that I wanted, the question that I wanted to raise with Tim was this, you suggest that any restrictions other than um, enforcement of the Public Order Act, any restrictions on protest outside abortion clinics would be on unlike what we do in English law. I take it from that that you disapprove of the treatment in English law of pickets because there is um, very, very strong restriction on the right to picket 
in industrial disputes in domestic law. So strong, in fact, that the Code of Practice says that only six, and sometimes less than six people, may assemble in a picket. And the police have enforced that code of action as if it were criminal. So we do enforce extreme restrictions on public assembly, and we do so. And that code of practice even applied when Rupert Murdoch took the uh, newspapers from Fleet Street to Walpang. The only place that the papers could lawfully protest was in Fleet Street because they had to protest at their place of work. Rupert Murdoch was in, was in Walpang. Great, thank you. Um, we'll come here. It's not clear to me what the issue is between the speakers. Um, I think there are some issues, but I don't think they've been articulated yet because both speakers, it seems to me, agree that intimidation can reach a certain level such that it needs to be abnormal. I mean, Frank said as much. Intimidation crosses a line, Frank said, and therefore it needs to be abnormal. And it seems to me that Tim agrees with that. Just that Tim would rather that the current law that under the, uh, the Public Order Act were, were invoked to deal with the problem. Now, so, so, so insofar as there's a difference between the two speakers, it seems to me it's where you draw that line. Now, it may well be that that's not a particularly interesting issue to discuss because it's, it's very fact-sensitive, um, and I would agree with that. I don't think it is particularly interesting to discuss, but I think it's, it's worth interesting that, uh, noting that both speakers really don't disagree profoundly on that issue of principle. But I do think there are some issues of principle which are in play with this issue, and what troubles me more with Frank's argument than with Tim's argument is that, Frank, I don't think you've addressed these issues. What troubles me about the Back Off campaign is that it's so mainstream in the sense that it's very much swimming with currents in society which are problematic, politically problematic, in the 21st century. And I think there's, there's three currents that I would like Frank in particular to address. Um, the first is that today everybody is seen as vulnerable. And the idea that people are robust and should demonstrate a reasonable degree of fortitude has gone. And that is politically problematic and that needs to be challenged. And I listened very carefully to what Anne said and despite the problems Anne that you described, it's not at all clear to me that the sort of intimidation you're talking about is of such a quality um, as to say, well, actually, people should be of sufficient fortitude to be able to deal with this. So that's, that's the first issue. The second, related to that, is that insofar as individuals can't deal with these problems, there is a real political problem these days with the diminishing of civil society. What we need to do politically is give more power to the individual, to the family, to friends, to communities, to organisations. And it's not at all clear to me why the women who Anne have described can't actually find their own solutions. Do they not have friends, partners, other people who can accompany them? Now, I'm often accused of living in an ivory tower and simply not knowing what goes on. But I, and that may be right. Maybe the problem is, is, is such that it can't be dealt with as a matter of civil society. But that brings me on to the, the, the third issue, which is, which is that everyone these days wants the state to back them. And Tim did address this issue. Tim began by speaking about this, and I, I thought what Tim said about this was, was very significant. Everyone wants the state to privilege their point of view because they can't win arguments with society, so they want the state to back them. And I'm troubled that this may not be Backoff's intention 
But it does seem to me that there are elements of that problem which inform the campaign. Great, thanks. We'll come back to you. Just behind you, George. There we are. Well, I think the, the speaker that said that there's no women on the panel indicated something, uh, which is the idea that you fight for a principle, you argue for a principle, as opposed to being a particular kind of person, goes to the heart of it. Because I'm, this, this issue is very confusing for me, and it was tricky. But it seems that, on the, on the one hand, I was very concerned that often really extreme examples are used to pass legislation. And it sounded like maybe the back-off thing would be used then to set precedents, uh, in a range of areas, and we see that the state is increasingly using all sorts of zones, cumulative impact zones, control zones. There's also an anti-social police, uh, policing, uh, uh, anti-social criminal policing act that's just been passed, and people can get moved out of areas and, and redirected, uh, and it's happening across seven or eight cities at the moment as we speak. But at the same time, the point about principle is that it seems to me this is not a principle. It seems to me these are some practical considerations for a clinic. And it's been elevated into a debate about a national principle. So I accept the point about freedom of assembly being secondary to freedom of speech. But is it not the case that we... And then the other complicating bit in it, just to wrap up, is I, I, I shy away from the idea of vulnerable women not being able to cope. But equally, if I've got a, a problem with my molar and I'm going to the dentist... That's not the juncture in which to interrogate my principle about whether I should be getting medical treatment or not. So I think it's fair enough to say if we want to have a robust discussion about freedom of speech or about the law in terms of abortion, that's one thing. But actually, on all demonstrations and elsewhere, there are already places where people are forced to congregate. It doesn't stop them saying what they want, but it does stop them interfering with patients. Great. I'm going to come back to the panel if they're happy to deal with some questions. Um, Frank, do you want to start off? Yeah. Uh... I think there's a lot, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of people in this uh, audience are projecting their fears that they have quite independent of what's happened in this particular instance and, re and kind of projecting on this particular situation in a way that it's really about their own issues rather than anything that BPAS or certainly you know, individuals linked with BPAS or myself have argued. I've not yet used the word vulnerable woman once. You know, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is not part and parcel. I, I use the word that I use, I the, uh, my presumption is, is that the women who go into these clinics are normal, everyday individuals, you know, neither more robust, nor necessarily more vulnerable than anybody else. Some of them might be, I don't know, but that's the presumption that I'm going on. It's the same presumption that I would have to anybody going into hospital, myself included, if I'm going in to get a service. I, I don't consider myself necessarily as a vulnerable adult. Uh, but I certainly in, you know, would not want to engage in certain uh, political activities at that particular time. So I think that's a bit of a red herring. On the question of the diminishing of the social, do not these women have husbands and boyfriends and you know, a posse of family members? Well, some do and some don't. You know, and, you know, whether we like it or not, there still is an element of stigma that's attached to abortion. A lot of women, quite self-consciously, don't want their family members, including their husbands, to have any idea about what's really going on. And they are, you know, whether we like it or not, as a result, they're fairly isolated. Some are not. And I know from talking to people that a lot of women do show up with their friends, their boyfriends, their sisters, or whatever, and sometimes they get into punch-ups, you know, when, when, when they are being, uh, you know, sort of approached. And that's not necessarily particularly helpful either. So, you know, the, the point is, is, is that that's not going to work. And in fact... I'm a big believer in counter-protest. In, in any other situation, 
I would organize a, a demonstrators to drive these people off the street. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's what you would do in, you know, in any healthy, democratic kind of context. But in this particular instance, that would just simply lead to the closing down the clinic. That would basically not be particularly helpful. And, it, and, and it's, not a, it's not an option to have you know, sort of civil disturbances being carried out. It may be an option in some faraway place, you know, sort of where there are big fields and everything else, but in, in, in this specific instance, it would lead to the closing down of that particular service. And that's, that's, that's really what, what it's all about. Now, on the state, you know, I mean, I'm not a big lover of state intervention in any domain of human experience. You know, on the other hand, I do, you know, I have to admit, you know, that sometimes I would actually go to the state. If uh, my house is on fire, I will not stand by my principle and say, I'm not going to want the fire, you know, sort of uh, in this thing. You know, if my mother is raped, I'm not going to say, oh, yes, I'm totally against, you know, police intervention. I, I will actually dial 999 or whatever that number is. You know, uh, and there are certain practical problems that all of us face which are not going to be sorted uh, in, you know, by ourselves. You know, I mean, if you, if you don't understand that, then you live in a fantasy world. You, know, you, you really have taken a, a grotesque caricature of what a principled position to state intervention is like, and, and you're missing the, the, the point altogether. The reality that we have to come back to, and, and also just one thing, people talk about moral pressure. I'm all for moral pressure which is what they're doing. And I don't want to pathologize my political enemies. They're probably as idealistic as I am, you know, deep inside. But if they are going to exercise moral pressure, then you have to also acknowledge is that what, you, what they're using is they're using force. I mean, you know, when I use moral pressure to dissuade somebody from, from, from you know, a scab from going into uh, a workplace, you know, you know, I'm using moral pressure, but I'm also using a bit of physical force. And the more of us that are there, the more effective we're going to be. You know, I acknowledge that what I'm doing is, is what it is. They are hiding behind this whole rhetoric of freedom, which I think is entirely uh, kind of illegitimate. So I think that what this discussion really lacks, I mean, is, 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 is a, a, an attention towards practical reality. As it happens, I think all of us, all sides of the debate, have every interest in making sure that clinics can function, just for the same reason that we have every interest in making sure that the protesters against the clinic can do a genuine job of protesting. And I don't want to tell them what the genuine job of protesting is. It's up to them to decide. And, and, and it seems to me that that's, symmetry, that's the symmetry that, that will actually work rather than the way that the issue has evolved at this moment. Great, thanks. Tim? Uh, yeah, uh, on the, uh, the point about uh, pickets, I think it's a really interesting point, uh, a point which I can't really answer, but I just wanted to say that, because I don't really know the answer, but I just want to say that if we had been having a debate about that in the early 80s, you might be surprised to find I'd be very sympathetic to the strikers. So I, I do think there's a general principle there which it does trouble me when the state gets involved in that way and does define which kind of protests are okay and which are not. Um, again, I, I agree with Peter's uh, and the excellent points made about something that just because something uh, has been legalised doesn't mean it's, it's then politically beyond contention. I would add to that something else I protested against, which is animal testing. Um, that's another thing which is legal in many regards. Some people regard it as a necessary aspect of medical care. I'm against it. I protested it. Um, and I'm very pleased to say it's been quite successful in some cases. It's, it strikes me that it's an accusation flying around that the whole debate has, has come down to vagaries. Uh, I agree with that. I apologise for that. The reason for that is because the whole concept um, of the buffer zone has clearly not been, has not been properly articulated and expressed and laid out in terms of legally what that means. 
And that's where the threat to freedom lies. When someone is politically making a case for some idea backed by some MPs to do something about a group of people outside some place, and we'll come up with the detail later, then that's where the devil gets into the detail, and that's where freedom eventually gets threatened. Okay, we've got one round of questions left, so um, if you haven't spoken before, get your hand up. Um, we'll go right to the back, and this chap here. I thought the two school open speeches were very good, and um, it is a tricky debate, and um, thinking out loud, honestly and openly, I'm trying to work out, it, it is a practical question that we're discussing, or a, or a more profound political question. So this is really naive, but, but honest with me. So if it's a practical question, and we have a problem with the anti-abortion protesters obstructing, threatening, doing what they're doing, obviously I'd accept that if they're standing in front of the doorway and they're trying to stop a woman walking in. But if you're standing to the side, which I assume they are, then the practical problem doesn't exist. But the problem might exist if our model of a human being, if our model of a woman is one that is so vulnerable that she's incapable. But where do you get that model from? This well, no, no, I, I'm, I'm thinking out loud. I'm assuming that some people think the reason why the woman needs protection and protesters must be asked to space away is because what the protesters are saying <coughs> is going to hurt and damage that woman. And this does come back to the debate about what, what, what the model of a woman walking in an abortion clinic is. If, if we think that that woman is able to choose for herself and think for herself, etc., then I'm thinking, in practical terms, is it not okay then to let the protesters do their stuff? Now, that's an honest, honest conundrum that I'm outlining. And I went to a meeting in West London about six months ago. Peter Williams was debating a fellow from America, the hardline fella. Whose name I forget. But one of the, this is about the model of a protester now, because one of those abortion 68 women, Operation Rescue women, she stood up and says, I was going for an abortion. And this crowd, Operation Rescue, Operation 68, they actually persuaded me not to go in. And so you have this situation where once a woman like that stands up, you're thinking, well, there might not be very many of them, but she was there and she was real. And so that's the dilemma, and I, I, I'm still not clear in my mind if this is a practical question. Or a more profound political question. Great, thank you. Uh, we'll go there. Um, well, I think it is a profound political question, and I think we're, we're not talking about so much the individuals being weak and, and victims, we're talking about politics being weak and victimised. Um, we are talking about, um, is this the pattern for politics? I mean, we don't live in a society where you can't stand for election or campaign and protest, but we are living in a society where the people who do stand for election are comedians like Al Murray, and people who are claiming to be political uh, stand outside clinics and harass people. So I find those arguments very convincing, that this is a denigration of the political sphere. And I found it very useful, Frank's point, about prizing apart uh, freedom of speech versus freedom to assemble. I thought that was a really good way of unlocking uh, the, um, uh, uh, the puzzle. But the bit I'm still having trouble with is that the back-off website says we are calling for legislation. Um, does that change anything? I don't know. Um, I could still support the arguments uh, that you're making. I still, I think, uh, given the state of politics in response to what you're saying, 
it is probably still worth campaigning for legislation. But I think you've got to really be clear on whether you're for or against it, rather than, uh, well, if it happens, it happens. Because the website says specifically, and the BPAS website says specifically, that we're calling for legislation. Okay, I'll come back to the back of the room. Um, yeah. I'm struggling to see the difference between, um, or, or struggling to see the, the, the outrage, and maybe that's a kind of mark of today's political discussion, is that everyone likes to be outraged about everything, which is that if you want to hold a protest, in general you have to go and ask the police if, to do that. You have to ask them which route you want to march down, where you want to assemble, and they'll set up a load of barriers, and you can't go beyond them, etc. if you do. Uh, you'll get arrested, etc., etc. So um, I'm, I'm struggling to see why people are being outraged about the fact that a, a, a few people are asked to do something there instead of there, when in general, if you want to actually hold any form of real, live, dynamic political protest, you have to go and ask for permission. So it seems to me that, that in, in all the changing context that we're, that we're discussing here, and I think some very good points have been made about recent modern political development, the right to be outraged seems to be being expressed in here, perhaps a little bit too much. Okay, great. We're going to come here. We'll look, yeah, it's out for a while. If we can jump over, that's it. Um, it is a practical question, then. It seems to me that the um, behaviour described, you describe, Anne, is a, a, just a completely open and shut case of Section 5 under the Public Order Act. It's a harassment case. Um, and quite an extreme one. So, as a practical solution, it would seem that the Metropolitan Police ought to go under a great deal of political pressure uh, to uh, act on what appear to be flagrant uh, breaches of the criminal law, which are happening repeatedly and in public. Uh, and I'm, I'm surprised that they're not sensitive to that. If I were involved in practical solutions to the problem, then that might be what I think about doing, because I thought they were very... It's so sweeping, section part of the public order, you do not need intent to bring in attention, that maybe holding up a placard in Bournemouth that says homosexuality is immoral is a, uh, will get you a conviction uh, for Section 5. Or in Luton saying a British soldiers in Afghanistan are baby murderers. Um, that will get you a Section 5 conviction. So it's a very simple practical solution. The trouble is, uh, you say you don't want a law, you don't want any new law, but that's exactly what you're going to get. The pattern of the last 20 years has been very much that the failure to enforce existing criminal law gets you new laws. And the kind of laws that are most popular, as someone said, are exclusion zones. Parliament will love to give you an exclusion zone, particularly what is now called a safe zone. Because a safe zone is what every student union in the country wants against anybody who intimidates other students. And intimidation is sexist language. Sexist language. In the university where I teach, um, the, uh, uh, the, the problem, it seems, and the problem that uh, they want to deal with in, in these ways is um, heterosexual masculinity. Too heterosexual or, uh, conduct is now, uh, you know, we need to seek safety from these things. So um, I do think uh, that that's a real problem. That's a real problem. It's not just a question. The difficulty the, of the argument you're laying down is that intimidation is a very flexible category. And it's one that's constantly invoked to, uh, to limit freedom of speech. And uh, you'll, you'll get what you ask for. Okay, I'm going to take it all hands. I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to take another three points. They've got to be sort of ten seconds each. I'm going to then quickly come back to Anne and then come back to the panel. Wendy. Uh, okay, um, well, just a quick response to that is maybe Anne could come to you for legal advice, Pete. Because I think um, <coughs> there is a sort of... Um, obviously, there are legal issues 
uh, that need to be explored and what's the best way of doing this, as I think Anne said. But I do think the, the main debate here that I find interesting and, and important is the debate between freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. And I think that distinction is really important in the same way that physical violence versus um, the kind of what you might call emotional violence are two very different things. That when you harass somebody uh, emotionally, you, we, make, we draw a line, you know, the sort of law, and one of the problems is we've had these boundaries crossed about sort of, of the laws where violence, physical violence, is treated almost the same as, as, as emotional violence. But I think if we're going to stand for freedom of speech versus freedom of assembly, we are talking about drawing the line between two quite different things. For me, that is still the difference between physical violence and emotional violence is the same as the um, freedom of assembly to freedom of speech is kind of analogy. I can't take anyone who's spoken before. I'm going to go very quickly there because he's had his hand up for a while and then I'm going to have to come down front, I'm afraid. Um, I'd just like to say that anybody who is relying on the Public Order Act um, <laughs> must be saying that prevention isn't better than cure. And I wondered how Tim was going to deal with uh, Frank's after the event point, which I thought was a very good one. Because actually, the Public Order Act doesn't really deter anybody. It's used by the police against drunk people in train stations, mostly. It's not used um, in this context. And sorry, I should have started by saying Lee Adams, and I know a criminal defence lawyer. So I've seen quite a few of these cases. So Public Order Act must mean prevention is not better than the cure. And that can't be right. Thank you, very succinct. I'm going to come down one quick point here and, and then back to the panel to sum up. Uh, my quick point is um, someone had previously used um, American abortion laws as a benchmark. You can't because um, though abortion is legal in America, it is under state uh, legislation. So basically the law protects them because abortion clinics are not state funded. They're all private and therefore they're on private land. So protesters can clearly protest, but they can't protest on their land. That naturally creates a buffer zone. These clinics are public. Abortion is funded by the NHS, and they're on public ground. So it should be more of a enforcement of legislation with police um, being able to monitor how, what is considered harassment for patients, because patients have rights too. Oh, okay. Um. I find it difficult to understand why it is that the police say that they cannot do what I think should be done in this instance, which is to provide a space around the clinic that is a safe space for the patients that are going into the clinic. That's not to say that in general I'm in favour of safe spaces, but I think that in this particular instance, under these particular circumstances, the safe getting into the clinic from the patient is what's required. Our point simply is it's not a fuzzing of the thing about the law, or we're not quite sure. It's simply, if the existing laws can be used, then the existing laws should be used. If the laws cannot be used, then something is required beyond the existing laws, because these people cannot be allowed to intimidate and to stop people in the way that they are doing. And it is as simple and straightforward as that. And I actually don't think that the issue of is it a law, is it a continuation of what exists at the moment, is the defining feature of this. It's basically, should women have to put up 
with this kind of treatment when they are coming in for medical treatment. Okay, thanks, Anne. Uh, right, so I'm going to give those speakers a couple of minutes each just to sum up. Uh, I'll take Tim first, if that's okay. Sure, I might not take the full two minutes. I, I don't want to repeat myself too much. Um, the answer to that question, that final question the point Anne makes is simply that no woman should not have put up with any behaviour which is illegal. It is that straightforward <coughs> and that simple. We should not have put up with any kind of behaviour that is illegal. The police should act. I think it's become apparent in the last hour and a half that what's being proposed uh, is vague, and I think that a lot of people have raised very good concerns as to what kind of implications that could have. I think it is also, as has been hinted at by one or two people in the last round of questions, it is also part of a trend uh, which is very disturbing. Uh, I was uh, part of a two-man team with Brendan O'Neill, you may have heard of, uh, who were invited to go and speak at Oxford, um, and we were essentially forced out of Oxford. We were denied uh, the right to speak there by the threat of protest to shut something down, and this is, this is part of a, a growing use of uh, authority to try and squeeze out certain points of view. So let's, as I said from the very beginning, it's a legal issue, it's a legal issue framed by the politics. And let's not ignore the wider cultural struggle that's going on here. Let's not ignore the politics of this, and let's not ignore the fact that sometimes in history people do try and use state power in order to uh, privilege one point of view, or even to silence those who disagree with it. Um, for instance, uh, in that last round of questions, someone made reference to the denigration of the political sphere. I find that an extraordinary statement to make. Who owns the political sphere? Do you, it, does it have to be a litmus test for taking part in it? Um, if it is too comedic, can it be silenced because it's too silly? Um, how does one have the right to go around classifying one group of protesters as simply un socially unacceptable, and another is matching some kind of perfect description of what the kind of people who should be allowed to speak on a certain subject, and the way they should and speak in the way that ought to be spoken about that subject. Reality is, is that society and democracy advances through debate, and quite often that debate and that conflict is ugly, and as I said again at the very beginning, for me, the benefit of liberal democracy is its attempt to seek a consensus between contrasting points of view to allow them to flourish within the same social sphere, to try and reduce conflict, but ultimately to respect the rights of the individuals involved. Uh, on a final point, uh, because it hasn't been mentioned yet, but is worth mentioning, there are quite often counter-protests at vigils outside abortion clinics, and they are quite often quite harassing. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I, I've got no problem with counter-protest, or as I said, I've got no problem with harassing people either. But uh, unlike uh, some people, I call you know a spade a spade, and you know sort of, and that's really what, how we should proceed, rather than to bring in an issue that's entirely uh, extraneous to this, which is anything to do with freedom, uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of protest, because I think they are really a red herring in relation to this. It seems to me that one of the uh, problems with the discussion, uh, as I see it, is that a lot of people tend to fall back upon a form of argument which I think is quite illegitimate, illegitimate, which is to argue by analogy. And therefore we are told that intimidation, you know, and it's, it's a very sexy thing over there. You know, we are told about these trends that exist in universities about safe spaces. We are told that there are all these slippages to the political sphere that might be occurring there. And I think uh, 
that's probably the case. I, I, I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that there is a, a, a very uh, censorious, illiberal uh, atmosphere existing in our society. And I'm quite happy to challenge that. And I have done my bit, I think, to challenge it in, in a number of different areas. However, the idea that somehow that the, the general trends, you know, sort of, have got to be somehow, you know, sort of uh, the reason as to why it's rediscovered in this particular instance is a bit of a jumping logic. It's a real leap, a conceptual leap between what you are worried about. That's what I was trying to say earlier on, the things that you're kind of concerned about, and this particular issue. Because this particular issue is really about something very, very different. And yes, it's politically contested. You know, uh, obviously, it's, it's a politically contested. And I think that's why it's interesting that the one thing that we're not having a debate about, which I think is absolutely crucial here, is who are the people going into the clinic? I mean, who, who are these people going? Now, aboard 67, I heard one of them say quite explicitly, not patients, mm. right? Now, you might say, well, it's a very vague, you know, sort of distinction, medical and moral, who's a patient, who's a patient. Well, maybe I'm simple-minded, but I come from a tradition where if you're going for a medical procedure, right, you're a patient. You know, this is what we call them. You know, maybe in a different world where there are more sophisticated individuals, you know, who are looking at the territory that divides the domain of the medical from the moral, maybe there are some different kind of categories, but they are patients. Now, you might want to contest them, and, and, and that's fair enough, right? But in my world, and this is the, the, the starting point of my argument, these people deserve to be treated as patients. You know, men and women. I mean, you know, anybody going for a, a sex change operation, anybody going to an STD clinic. I mean, there's a lot of embarrassing things people are going for. They ought to be uh, given the, 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 the right to patient confidentiality. They ought to be able to make their own way and think about the, the treatment. I know myself that when I go for a medical treatment, maybe I'm weak and vulnerable, not like most of you in this room, you know, but I'm shitting myself. You know, I got butterflies in my stomach. I got a lot of things that I worry about at that particular moment in time. And a civilized society recognizes that. And the very fact that we're trying to erode that distinction and we try to hold patients to a very different standard, I do think is illegitimate. So what I'm arguing is please forget about your analogies. You know, if you want to fight yes, in the imposition of safe spaces in universities, then fight that battle over there. If you want to fight against the trivialization of intimidation, fight that battle in, in that domain. If you want to fight about state intervention in, in, in a number of different areas, by all means struggle there, but these are not the issues that emerge from this particular question. I think it's the projection, it's the, it's, the, it's the inability to confront those things in those areas that leads people in a very frustrated way not to recognize that what's at, what is at stake here is the running of a clinic. Because let me tell you that if something isn't really done, that clinic will shut down. Now you might think that's a really good thing, but all that I can say is that from the standpoint of women who have access to that service, and from the standpoint of, of the people who have a duty of care, it, it really isn't. And the reason why it will be sub, shut down is because in the world we live in, what's at issue isn't just simply the woman's response to that. You know, even if every woman just goes like this to the protesters, you know, sort of, it will be shut down. And the reason why it will be shut down is because the people that manage the building, the people that, that, that are there, will not tolerate that. You know, will simply not tolerate that. Right? And I think that's something, that's, that's a serious practical matter. So the, the idea that what's at issue here is just the woman and the protester, rather than the context within which this is, is occurring, 
overlooks the real issues that are going on there. And, it's very, and it, the issue ultimately is whether it can stay open or not. And that's what you've got to take a side on, rather than trying to find some artificial reason for not really understanding that we have to make some very difficult decisions sometimes in order to solve a very practical problem. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.